Well, hello, church. Welcome to the Austin Stone. My name is Ross Lester, and it's very, very good to be with you here today. We're going to be in the Gospel of Matthew, and Matthew 17 is where we are going to jump in. See, part of the legacy of this church over the 18 years of its existence has been a commitment to holding the truth of God's Word high by studying it, by preaching it, by understanding it, by sharing it, and by obeying it. Our preferred teaching methodology and preaching methodology has been what's known as systematic exposition, where we spend time going through books of the Bible as much as we can, line by line, verse by verse, and letting the Spirit guide us on what needs to be said to our people and when. And it's amazing over the history of the church just seeing how the Spirit does that again and again. We really do prefer this method of preaching, though we know that it's not the only way to do it by a long shot, and we recognize the need to break away from it occasionally in order to preach on something topical as the Spirit leads us, but we're jumping back into it today. It's our great joy to jump back into our multiple-year study of the Gospel of Matthew, and to do so in a text that is so profound, so layered, and so beautiful that it's actually been very intimidating for me to prep over the last few weeks and very intimidating for me to preach in a way today. It's a text that reveals so much of the glory and splendor of Christ and so much of the wonder and the wisdom of God's sovereign plans that I think if the Spirit would just enable us and if the Spirit would just speak through the words today, I think we might not have any other choice but to be moved to wonder and worship today. So with all that said, why don't you turn with me to Matthew 17 and verse one, the famous text that captures the story known as the transfiguration of Jesus Christ. The context here is important. Um, And we last looked at this text in November, which feels like it was about 17 years ago with all that has happened in December and January. And so I wanna remind us of some of that context before we read it together. You see, most of the first 16 chapters of the Gospel of Matthew serve to prove the identity of Christ as the long-awaited king, the, the, the one, the Christ, the anointed one, the Messiah. It builds perfectly to Peter's confession where he says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. With that revealed and proven in those first 16 chapters through Jesus' wisdom, his miraculous power, his remarkable fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy, Jesus then turns his face and his attention and his posture towards Jerusalem where he knows he needs to go in order to suffer for the sins of the world. And so in Matthew's account, straight after Peter's confession, Jesus turns to teach his disciples that though he is a king, he is a king who goes to a cross. And that if they wanted to follow him, if they wanted to be part of his kingdom in a faithful way, if they wanted to enjoy the splendor of the kingdom and all that it has to offer, then they needed to embrace a life shaped by the cross. They needed to walk in the way that he would walk, the way of crucifixion, by carrying their own crosses and following him with everything that they had. 
So what is happening then in this season of Jesus' ministry as we jump into the text is that he's actually preparing his disciples for immense suffering. He's helping them to know, I am the Christ, and what comes next is immense suffering for him and for them. And it's in that context that this great, remarkable, supernatural event known as the transfiguration takes place. Uh, Read with me from verse one of Matthew 17. It says, after six days, after six days. I love that. There are just periods, even in the ministry of Jesus, where nothing really happens for a week. They've, they've had this remarkable activities in, in, in these incredible areas on the far side of the sea. They've worked so hard that's built to this great revelation of, of Jesus' identity and his call to them to say, well, if you want to follow me, you've got to take up your cross and, and follow me and walk in the way that I would walk. And then he lets them catch their breath, it would seem, for six days. And then Jesus took Peter. Peter, James, and his brother John, and led them up on a high mountain by themselves. He was transfigured. He was transformed. He was changed in his appearance in front of them. And his face shone like the sun. His clothes became as white as the light. Suddenly, Moses and Elijah appeared to them talking With him. Then Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it's good for us to be here. If you want, I will set up three shelters here one for you, and one for Moses, and one for Elijah. While he was still speaking, suddenly a bright cloud covered them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell face down and were terrified. Jesus came up, touched them, and said, get up, don't be afraid. When they looked up, they saw no one except Jesus alone. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus commanded them, don't tell anyone about the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. And so the disciples asked him, why then do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? Elijah is coming and will restore everything, he replied. But I tell you, Elijah has already come, and they didn't recognize him. On the contrary, they did whatever they pleased to him. In the same way, the Son of Man is going to suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he had spoken to them about John the Baptist. This is the word of the Lord. Sometimes in your life, you need a mountaintop experience in order to get the proper perspective on what you are facing. When Sue and I and our young family were preparing to move to the United States in 2017, um, I was in a series, uh, in a season of pronounced anxiety. There was a lot of change going on in our life, and to be honest, I was wondering if we were doing the right thing. I had left my job at a church that I absolutely adored, and we were in the middle of some very painful goodbyes to friends and family, and we had sold our house, and we were living with my in-laws, who are wonderful, but it's not exactly every 38-year-old's man's dream to to live with their in-laws for a season. We had two young kids who were majorly unsettled, and I was constant in my prayer life asking the Lord, are we doing the right thing? 
I was kind of wracked with anxiety in terms of the plans and purposes that God had for us. And so we decided to spend a couple of weeks traveling around South Africa as kind of a, a farewell to that beautiful place, not sure of when we would see it again. And we went down to one of the most beautiful cities on the planet, the city of Cape Town. If you haven't been, you, you have to go. The, the, the coastline, the winelands, the views, the weather, the food, everything. It's just a truly special place. And the city, if you know it, is built around a mountain called Table Mountain, which has this distinctive flat top, and you can kind of see it from wherever you are in the city. And you can hike up it if you're mad and don't believe in modern technology, or you can take a cable car ride which goes up to the top and from the top you get to see all of Cape Town overlooking the beautiful ocean landscape in front of you. On one of the last days that we were there, we decided we would do this tourist thing and we would go in the cable car. Now already, as I've said, I was anxious. Sue was starting to get pretty anxious and our kids were picking up on it. And now we went and stood in a long line of tourists to go up in a cable car. Um, I don't like heights, I don't like enclosed spaces, and I don't like panicky children. And we had all of those as a trifecta as we stood in that cable car. And I was negotiating with the Lord um, all of the ways that uh, things could go differently. And as we got in, they crammed us, about 30 of us, into this cable car and began a 3,500-foot descent, uh, ascent to the top of the hill. And our little two-year-old girl, Katie, who was unsettled and acting like an unsettled two-year-old, just started to lose it. And in an opposite of Liz Lemon moment, she looked up at the mountain and she said, I do not want to go to there. Um, and, and I laughed briefly for a moment, but then she just lost it. And she had a temper tantrum right there in the cable car with 30 tourists, all offering us parenting uh, in, uh, input through the looks on their faces as we made our way up to the top. And every time we ran over those little wheels on a cable car, I was certain we were going to die. And I was just praying and I was mad. And I was like, Lord, what are we doing? Why are we leaving this great place? I don't know what lies ahead. And as we got out to the top, we bundled out and we made apologetic glances to all of our fellow passengers, but then we stopped and looked around. And what I had in that moment, riddled with anxiety, was a mountaintop experience. I looked out at the view over Lion's Head and Signal Hill out into the Atlantic Ocean with Robben Island sitting in the distance. I saw the smallness of this great city below. I felt our exposure to the elements, the, the wind blowing wherever it pleased. It brought such a sense of wonder and comfort to my heart because I got some perspective. I got a revelation, a reminder of who God is and how his creative genius works and how firmly in control of the universe he is because the same God who made all of this beauty that was around me was directing our steps at that very moment. I knew in that moment through that revelation that he would help us as parents, he would help us as friends, he would help us as ministers of the gospel, that he was leading us and guiding us. Just look at who he is as I looked at his beautiful creation. It was so good for my soul in that moment to get a proper perspective, a reality check. And this kind of perspective, this kind of reality check at a very minimum is what is going on in the text in the transfiguration of Jesus. There's a lot else going on. We could preach a whole series on it. But at a minimum, there's this revelatory reality check in the life of those three disciples who get invited in to see it. On a mountaintop, they get this revealing of the power 
and nature of God. And that revealing will allow them to endure whatever it is that lies ahead in their lives. So let's just walk through it again with those lenses in. And I have three observations for us today from the text. And I'm praying, Holy Spirit, just help us. Because I've got no potential in me to be able to explain the glory and the wonder of what took place there. Help us, please. The three that I have to say today are this. To prepare his disciples for suffering, Jesus offers them, one, a revelation of his true identity, two, a reminder of his true character, and three, a reassurance of God's glorious plans. All right, first, to prepare his disciples for suffering, remember, that's what's coming. He's turning towards Jerusalem. He's gonna suffer, they're gonna suffer. To prepare them for that, Jesus offers them a revelation of his true identity. Look at it again with me. Just read this text slowly. Just imagine the scene. Imagine the scene. After six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and his brother John. I often, I often wonder what the other disciples must have felt like at this moment. They're like, it's always them. Come on. But he takes them, in part, I believe, because of the very particular place that they will play, the very particular parts they will play in the early church. And he led them up on a high mountain by themselves. He was transfigured in front of them. Just, just think of this, friends. Think of the remarkable things we believe. That Jesus' true identity is revealed in a moment. He's transfigured in front of them. And his face shone like the sun. His clothes became as white as the light. Suddenly, Moses and Elijah appeared to them, talking with them. This is a big moment. Then Peter said to Jesus, and I get this, I, I empathize with what Peter's trying to do here. He's like, this is good, let's, let's chill here for a bit because this is big, right? We've got Jesus, we've got Moses, we've got Elijah. This is a big moment, let's build some houses, right? And it's good for us to be here. If you want, I'll set up three shelters here, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. While he was still speaking, suddenly a bright cloud covered them and a voice from the cloud said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell face down and were terrified. Again, there's so much going on here. We could get lost in so much of the magnificent detail for so long. But in essence, the transfiguration is a revelation of reality as it really is. Uh, at least in part, it's for the, the benefit of Peter and James and John knowing the work that lies ahead of them. It's a pulling back of the curtain of their everyday life and getting a glimpse into what is taking place and what will take place. Place. And that's what we all want, isn't it? We all want to know what is really happening in the world. What is the reality behind the reality that we can see? Uh, we see this so prevalent in our society, and it's probably the good urge that drives out some bad things. It's, it's probably the urge that drives out so much conspiracy theory thinking in us in the moment. We, we don't really know what's going on. We can't tell from first glance what's really happening, and we want to know what's going on. Well, on this mountaintop, Peter, James, and John, they get to see what's really happening in the universe in that moment. It's the, the red pill of matrix fame, if you like, and I know I've just aged myself significantly with that Keanu uh, reference. Uh, you wanna see? Well, look at this. And what is revealed as ultimately true, what is revealed as ultimately in control of everything, who is revealed as ultimately in the center of the whole universe? Christ, in his fullness 
in the fullness of his glory. And, and what do they get to see about Christ? Well, firstly, they get to see that he is revealed as the center point of Scripture and the center point of all of redemptive history. Just work with me here for a second. This imagery is rich, but just work with me. It's complex, but amazing. Just like Mount Sinai, you have a high mountain away from the people. You have faces that are radiating God's glory. You have a cloud of God's powerful presence. And then you have God's voice speaking mightily, which results in great awe and fear and wonder from people. There is so much fulfillment of Old Testament imagery in one scene. It is incredible. And then you have who? Moses and Elijah present with Jesus. Now, I've got to admit, I wonder when I read this text, how did they know it was Moses and Elijah? We're never told, but that's obviously clear, and I'm not sure if they needed an introduction. Was there a point at which Jesus was like, ah, oh, my bad, Peter, James, John, Moses, Elijah, you've read about them um, in the Old Testament. Moses, Elijah, Peter, James, John, these are the guys I was telling you about, and it's like this knowing nod between them. I'm not sure if the introduction even happens or if it's just evident from from what's taking place in the scene and revealed by the Holy Spirit. But, but suddenly, these two incredible archetypal figures are standing with Jesus. It's so magnificent that it's these two. Nigerian scholar Takumbo Adeyemo points out just some of the significance. He says, both of these men had met with God on Mount Sinai. Horeb is the same mountain. Both of them, that's Moses and Elijah, had suffered persecution for obeying God. Both of them were anticipated to return in the Messianic age, according to the prophetic tradition. Both of them had mysterious deaths, or at the least, the disappearance of their physical forms from the earth. Both of them were icons for parts of redemptive history, with Moses representing the law and Elijah representing the prophets. And so, friends, just look with me for a second. I know it's a lot. But what you see at the transfiguration in a snapshot is actually a wonderful picture of your whole Bible. You have the law, you have the prophets. And what are they doing? They're pointing to Christ. And then you have the disciples and the early church. And what are they doing? They're following Christ, submitting to Christ. And in the center of it all, what do you have? Who do you have? King Jesus revealed in his glory, holding it all together just as he said he did when he taught them how to read their Bibles in Luke 24. My friends, how many of us today, above all of our other needs, though we have many, how many of us today really just need a revelation of the centrality of Christ in the universe, in history, and in our own lives. How many of us, I have, have found ourselves confused and distressed and fearful, even trying to make sense of the world around us and even perhaps what the Bible has to say about it, but we haven't stopped for a long time to look at Christ as the center of it all. We haven't considered his power, his love, his magnificent ethic, his grace, his sacrifice, his humility. And because we don't consider that often enough, we can't make sense of anything else in the cosmos. When was the last time he just sat down and read the Gospels and marveled at the centrality of Jesus Christ? How much 
of your worldview and your associated ideologies? Uh, how much are they chafing you? Because you're actually trying to shoehorn Jesus into them instead of building our very thought patterns of our lives around him. He's the center of it all. He holds it all together. Not just that, though. He's revealed as the eternally beloved son who has absolute authority. The disciples get to see in physical form that Jesus is so much more than a humble carpenter. Oh, friends, sometimes we forget who we are dealing with in our King Jesus. His clothes revealed as blinding whites, which is exactly what they will be when he resurrects and ascends. We are told that those blinding white robes will still cover him in heaven and in his glorious eternal state. And his face shines with glory, even more so than Moses' face had reflected God's glory when he met with God on Sinai. You see, Jesus' face doesn't reflect light, it radiates light because he is the one who spoke light into being in the first place. He doesn't have to reflect it from somewhere else. It comes from him because it is his. Light is his. It's from him. Our friends, imagine Peter (laughs) and James and John. They know the incarnated Jesus. They know that he is the Christ. They've declared that. But they know him most closely in his human bodily form. They have traveled with him and eaten with him and shared tents and accommodations with him. They have seen him do the miraculous, to be sure. But they've also seen him grow weary. They have seen him hungry and maybe even a little bit hangry. They have seen him troubled. But here they get a revelation of who they are actually dealing with. And it changes everything. I came across this marvelous quote from H.D.M. Spencer Jones, who um, is a very intriguing Anglican scholar. And he wrote about the wonder of this moment and the incredible humility of Christ's incarnation revealed in his transfiguration. Look at this quote. It says, the word of God allows for a brief space his essential glory to irradiate and shine through the form of a servant which he wore. Not that he showed his divine nature or laid aside his human body. His bodily nature remained in its entirety, but permeating it was an effulgence, man, we've got to use that word more, was an effulgence which indicated the Godhead. Here's where it gets so good. Perhaps it might be said, as an old writer puts it, that the transfiguration was less a new miracle than the temporary cessation of an habitual miracle. For the veiling of his glory was the real marvel, the divine restraint which prohibited the illumination of his sacred humanity. Oh my goodness. Imagine those men as they get to see Jesus for who he really is. Oh, how we need it today. And then God the Father speaks. And when he does, everyone, even Peter is left silent and in awe. I love how Peter gets interrupted by God the Father. Peter's speaking and then God speaks. Peter's like, my bad. No, you carry right on, right? You you go, you go. I've got nothing to say. Uh, And what does the Father say? He says what he said at Jesus' baptism. He says, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. What should you do? Listen to him. My friends. 
how we need a fresh revelation today of the power of God in the person of his son. Oh, how we need to be silenced for a moment like Peter. And how we need to bow in awe before the Lord and a new commitment to listen to his son, Jesus Christ. Where are you not listening to Jesus? That's what I asked myself as I was prepping this message. There's so many spaces where I have sideways energy, stress, anxiety, anger, confusion, and at the heart of it, I'm just not listening to Jesus because I haven't stopped for a while to consider who I'm dealing with. He's not a life coach, he's the king of kings. His teachings aren't to be weighed and assessed and taken in moderation, they're to be obeyed, he's to be listened to. So much of our grief, my grief is caused when I don't listen to him, when he says, hey, the last will be first, the first will be last. Why are you striving to be first? When he says it's better for you to cut off your hand than for you to sin with it, why do you keep pursuing sin as if that pleasure will will, will yield something that you know it cannot give you? When he says love your neighbor as yourself, why do you keep living a life that's focused in on itself, thinking that joy is there? When he says, see, I will never leave you, I will never forsake you, why do you spend so much time worrying if you are truly alone? When he said, it is finished, and he spoke mercy and grace over all who would come and believe in him, why do you still wallow in guilt and refuse to take up that grace which so abounds in the person and work of Jesus Christ? Listen to him. Listen to him. Okay, he offers them a revelation of his true identity. I'll speed it up now. Second, To prepare his disciples for suffering, Jesus offers them a reminder of his true character. Not just who he is, but what he is like. This is not just a display of Christ's true power and majesty, but also his meekness and his mercy. Look at how Jesus responds to to his now felled and terrified disciples. Verse seven, Jesus came up, touched them, and said, get up, don't be afraid. When they looked up, they saw no one except Jesus alone. This is such beautiful language. Look what he does. He touches them. He encourages them. He comforts them. He reminds them that they don't need to be afraid because remember who he is. This account reminds me of the resurrection account in Matthew 28 where the disciples fall at his feet in astonishment and fear and Jesus says tenderly to them, don't be afraid. It also reminds me of the vision that this same John who got to see this transfiguration gets much later in life, which is recorded in Revelation 1. In Revelation 1, we encounter old man John, suffering old man. He gets a glimpse of the resurrected and ascended Jesus in heaven. And Jesus is again radiating glory. His face shines like the sun. He's in dazzling white robes and John is totally undone. He, He falls at his feet, verse 17. I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man. And how does Jesus respond to his old friend John, this risen, ascended, ruling Jesus? He laid his right hand on me, touched him again, and said, don't be afraid. I'm the first and the last and the living one. I was dead, but look, I'm alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys to death and Hades. This revealed King Jesus, this powerful Jesus, 
touches his followers in mercy. He invites them to their feet and he tells them, don't be afraid. My friend, what are you afraid of? What would be different for you today if you had a revelation of who Jesus is and were to hear a fresh hymn say to you, get up, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. In order for us to truly do that in a way that isn't just based on our human instinct and on our own awesomeness, we're gonna need a fresh revelation of who Christ is. Okay, to prepare his disciples for suffering, Jesus reveals to them his true identity his true character, and lastly, Jesus offers them a reassurance of God's glorious plans. Uh, Look at this with me as we get ready to close. On the way down the mountain, Jesus reminds his disciples that the death still lies ahead for him. Can you imagine their joy? They're like, oh guys, we've seen it. It all makes sense. You won't believe how powerful Jesus is. And, and, and Elijah was there and Moses was there. But Jesus is warning them, hey guys, this doesn't negate the need for the cross. You're still going to see me suffer and then it's going to come for you too. The, the way to his true glory is the way of the cross and it isn't time yet. And so he warns his disciples, look what he, look what he says, verse nine. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus commanded them, don't tell anyone about the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. Well, what does that imply? He's gonna be killed. He's gonna die. Can you imagine what a tough ask that is for these poor guys? They've just seen the most incredible thing in their entire lives and now they need to keep it to themselves. And as we've seen from the life of Peter, he's not super good at that. But Jesus' timeline includes a death. And when he said that, that that, that confused them. They're struggling to piece together how that all fits in. And so the disciples asked him, verse 10, why then do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? Friends, this is a fair and a reasonable question. You see, prophetic tradition had taught them that when Elijah appeared, who have they just seen? Elijah, right? And they're like, Elijah came, and prophetic tradition teaches us that when Elijah appears, then they're close to the coming of the king. And in their minds, this meant the end of their suffering, not the beginning of more suffering. And so they couldn't compute why Jesus was still speaking of a death. It made no sense to the idea of how eschatology would be realized. Here's what Jesus says to them, verse 11. Elijah is coming and will restore everything, he replied. Prophecies are true in a way. They are true. You've just misinterpreted their application. But I tell you, Elijah has already come. And they didn't recognize him. On the contrary, they did whatever they pleased to him. In the same way, the Son of Man is going to suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he had spoken to them about John the Baptist. Here's what Jesus was teaching the disciples in that moment. The suffering that befell John the Baptist was not evidence that God's redemptive plan was being thwarted or overcome. God had it in control and was working all things together in the person of John, even in the midst of his suffering. And so, When the suffering was gonna come for Jesus, God was not being thwarted in that either. And when the suffering eventually came for the disciples, that wasn't God's purpose being overruled. Quite the opposite. God was and is achieving his glorious purposes even in the midst of what looked like immense suffering and brutal opposition. Again, that same scholar Adiemo is extremely helpful in reminding us this. He says on this text, 
the glory that was natural to Christ must be combined with the humiliation of the cross. The two go together. His disciples too must often face the cross in order to gain glory. Any theology that denies that Jesus' disciples will suffer is deficient and stands in opposition to Jesus' experience, biblical teaching, and human experience. Okay. Well, how do we take this to heart? Well, friends, whatever we go through, we endure it. We endure whatever this life throws at us. We refuse to let it make us believe that God is no longer as powerful or glorious or kind or merciful or loving as he has been fully revealed to us to be in his glorious son. We are people who have seen the truth of the resurrected, glorified king. The curtain of the world has been pulled back and standing right in the center of it all is our King Jesus. And we take that to heart and we refuse to be afraid and we press on into all that God has for us, whether that be moments of glory or moments of crucifixion, we press forward knowing that Jesus is and always will be exactly who he says he is. It struck me as I was thinking about this that Peter took this moment deeply to heart. He still struggled. He still doubted. He still failed. He's going to go on from this moment and make epic fails. But when he was much older, he wrote some epistles to saints he loved, saints who were suffering while he suffered. And he urged them to do something. He urged them to persevere in the faith to carry on in holiness even though it seemed, it seemed futile and to believe in their process of sanctification even though they thought it was going nowhere. He knew his life on earth was winding down but he knew that he could endure and the rest of the saints could endure because he had seen what Jesus was really like. And so in 2 Peter chapter one, he reminds them of the event of the transfiguration. And what does he do as a result of that? He says, make every effort to make your calling and election sure. Even in the midst of suffering, persevere, be holy, be loving, be certain, press on, keep going. Why? He says, because we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. We saw it. What can I tell you? We saw him as he really, really is. Ah, oh, friends, what a text. Here's the temptation for a preacher and for bands and worship environments and church services. The temptation for us on a day like today is to go, okay, Lord, what we need is for you to do it again. <laughs> Just do it again. And, and, I, and I feel that. I've been praying that. Lord, pull back the curtain. Let us see. Let those who don't see the true Christ, let them see him today. Let those whose eyes have grown dim and hearts have grown faint, let them see today. But here's the truth. I can't make that moment if the Spirit wills, and while we're singing afterwards, you get a great revelation and reminder of who Jesus Christ is, praise God, that is wonderful. I'm praying that you would get to look and see what he is truly like. And I'm praying that as a result, you will learn to stand and to not be afraid. But friends, instead of us saying that what we really need is this experience again, 
Maybe we need to go back to the revealed word of Jesus Christ and remember that we stand in the privileged position of people who get to see so much more than what Peter, James, and John had seen at that point. We get to see the evidence of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so 2 Corinthians 3, 18 says we're in a more privileged position because it says we all with unveiled face, there's nothing standing between us and the glory of the risen Christ because of what he has done for us. Beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. Keep going. Keep going. We've got an unveiled face today. Why? Christ tore the curtain of the temple and said, behold, now explore and, and see and know the glory of God in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Oh, I pray that you have a supernatural encounter today. But I also pray that you believe what you already believe and that Jesus Christ is who he says is. Friends, if you're in a service today and you've never seen Christ for who he is, I'm praying the Holy Spirit will awaken your heart, open it to you. He's not just a humble carpenter, he is that, but he's also the king of kings. He's also the king of kings. And we should bow before him and listen to him and obey him and believe him all the days of our lives. Remember, who he really is. Remember his true identity. But remember also his true nature. He's so kind and tender. And then remember, whatever you face now, the mystery of his marvelous plans, they can't be thwarted. And then persevere. Keep going, keep going, keep going from one degree of glory to another until that magnificent day when our faith will be made sight and those white robes will be in front of us and his face shining like the sun will be before us until that day. Keep going. Listen to him. Father God, thank you for your word. Lord, I pray that you help us to just believe it. I cannot imagine what that mountaintop must have been like <laughs> to see your son as he really is, as he always has been. Oh, what a sight. But Lord, I pray that you would encourage me and us to remember that we have unveiled faces and that in the revelation of the word, we again today can see your son Jesus for who he really is. Help us to do that. Give us faith to see. Give us eyes to see. What's really happening in the universe is your son Jesus ruling and reigning. Teach us. Change us. Help us to listen to him. And then help us to persevere and to thrive in whatever lies ahead of us, knowing that your plans cannot be thwarted. You're a good God. You're a good God. Teach us to be your people. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.